A lot can happen between falling in love with a house online and owning it. Between imagining living there and breathing in your new home for the first time. Having an advocate who can help you navigate the complex world of financing, inspections, negotiating, analyzing the market, and talking through any anxieties that may pop up, that can make all the difference. That's what the expertise of a Realtor can do for you. Realtors are members of the National Association of Realtors and bound by a code of ethics. Because that's who we are. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Grammar Girl here. I'm Mignon Fogarty, and you can think of me as your friendly guide to the English language. We talk about writing, history, rules, and cool stuff. Today, we're going to start with rules, but go heavy on history at the end, because what I thought would be an easy question to answer took me down an interesting rabbit hole and finally to an interview. It all started with this voicemail message. Hi, Grammar Girl. I write, um, I actually work for the federal government, and I have a good enough command of writing and grammar that I am humorously referred to as the grammar guru. Recently, we were writing a report, and something came up. Um, Some of the people on the committee thought that we should capitalize zip code, and it should be capitalized, capital Z, capital I, capital P, capital C, O, D, E. And my take on that is that would be correct if you are referring to the specific thing, um, the postal system, that, that specific system. But if you're talking about zip code, it has become kind of a generic like Kleenex. And I don't listen to your podcast, so if you decide to use this, could you please answer it in your column? Thanks very much, Grammar Girl. I remain a faithful reader. Thanks again. Bye-bye. Well, first, you should listen to the podcast, but the answer will be on the website as an article, too. It's extremely rare that material isn't on both. But thank you for submitting the question as a voicemail so I can use it in the podcast. Like I said, I thought this would be a quick answer. I'd look it up in a couple of style guides and bing, bam, boom, the end. But it wasn't so simple, and I started finding interesting tidbits. For our international listeners, zip codes are an American thing. They're the five-digit codes at the very end of a mailing address. And if you want to be really detailed, you can add four more numbers to the end. And in my experience, that does help the post office deliver your mail a little faster. Other countries sometimes call the address codes postal codes, and some countries don't have them at all. And in the United States, we use just numbers, but some other countries also use letters. Since our caller works for the U.S. government, and since zip codes are a government thing, I checked the U.S. Printing Office style guide first. 
It recommends zip code, two words, with zip in all caps, and the C in code capitalized. Associated Press style is similar, zip code, two words, with zip in all caps, but it uses a lowercase c in code, and I was surprised it would deviate from the U.S. government recommendations. So I looked a little deeper, and this made me laugh. Someone asked in the AP Style Book Q&A section why AP Style lowercases the word code when the source, the U.S. Postal Service, capitalizes it. And the reply from the AP editors was, quote, The U.S. Postal Service likes capitalization more than we do. We have different styles, unquote. <laughs> so there you go. They just like it better lowercase. And that's how styles work. Also, I didn't know that ZIP stands for Zone Improvement Plan, and the U.S. Postal Service originally trademarked the phrase ZIP Code. When I look at the listing on the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office website, it looks like that trademark expired in 1997. On the other hand, the U.S. Postal Service website still puts a TM, trademark symbol, after ZIP Code. So maybe I'm missing something, or maybe whoever writes their website didn't get the memo. The AP Stylebook doesn't put a trademark symbol after zip code, but they don't recommend doing it for any trademark, so that doesn't really tell us anything about the trademark status. I also found that the home furnishing company, Wayfair, holds the trademark for the use of the term zip code, all one word, on items like lamps, carpets, bedding, and furniture. How weird is that? So I searched the site to see if they had products with the word zip code on them, but they don't. Instead, they have what looks like a house brand called zip code design. So that makes a little more sense. To sum up, the three style guides I checked each have a different way of writing zip code. The U.S. government printing office uses zip code, two words, all caps on zip, a capital C on code, and you'll often see a trademark symbol at the end. The AP Stylebook uses zip code, two words with a lowercase c on code, and no trademark symbol at the end. And just to keep it wild and to keep you on your toes, the Chicago Manual of Style uses zip code, still two words, but all lowercase, all of it, the zip and the code, lowercase. And you thought we were finished, but zip code can also be a verb. Both Dictionary.com and Merriam-Webster list zip code as a verb, and they keep it all lowercase and use a hyphen, zip hyphen code. It means to mark something with a zip code, as in, be sure to zip code that letter. So that's the end of the style advice, but now we're going to get into some history, because zip codes are much newer than I thought they'd be. The main five-digit codes we use today in the United States were only introduced in 1963, and at first, they were optional. I'm pretty sure that even today, some people don't have one, and that's when I realized that I know someone who knows all kinds of interesting things about the history of addresses. She's Deirdre Mask, the author of the new book, The Address Book, What Street Addresses Reveal About Identity, Race, Wealth, and Power. And I'll talk with her right after this quick break. I'm here with Deirdre Mask, author of a book called The Address Book, and we're going to talk about zip codes and so much more. Welcome, Deirdre. Thank you so much for having me, Mignon. 
You bet. I'm so excited to talk with you about these things. So in the first part of this podcast, we talked about zip codes and that they didn't exist until the 1960s. So can you tell me more about how they came to be and how they got introduced? Yeah, I mean, we totally take them for granted now, but basically around the 40s, um, you have this explosion in mail and you have this postal worker, his name is Robert Moon, and he comes up with this idea that he pushed for 20 years to get implemented, to come up with the idea of the zip code. Um, he called himself Mr. Zip. Um, but in general, and, and on July 1st, 1963 was when they actually introduced the five-digit zip code. And zip code stands for Zoning Improvement Plan. Um, and it was actually an incredibly practical way of dealing with the onslaught of mail because it makes, you know, much easier to do mechanical sorting. So you have these five digits of the zip code. And, um, you know, the first digit is from zero to nine. So you have 10 digits, zero being the northeast all the way to nine on the west coast. So you can kind of track that. Um, and then the other digits just sort of get smaller and smaller into like a larger postal um, the largest sort of postal center office, and then it gets smaller and smaller to those final little digits at the end that a lot of people forget to add in, which really narrow down just to a few streets or sometimes even just like one high-rise building. Wow. So those are the four digits that you can then tack on the end. Exactly. Exactly. Like, yeah. Yes, exactly. Okay. And, okay, and yeah, so no, Mr. Please. Zip, he, so he, it took him 20 years, but he finally succeeded in getting <laughs> yeah, the Post office says it was a committee. Um, he very much, I think, Jill's death rallied for himself, and his wife even wore the, a little a little necklace that said Mrs. Zip on it her whole life. And she claimed um, later in his obituary that uh, they were Republicans and the, the post office officials were Democrats, and this was why you know he didn't get um, he didn't get his idea through faster. But oh um, you can make your own judgment. <laughs> and wasn't there a song? Yes. Yeah, so, you know, it seems obvious now that we use zip codes, but at the beginning, people were really suspicious of them. They didn't know why do we need these and why would we use them? So there was actually this huge marketing campaign that the post office put forth. So there was a little character called Mr. Zip, who was this really cute cartoon character who advertised him. And there was this band, which was called the Swinging Six. And it's actually it's just been described to me as folk slash Broadway. So you can picture whatever you like. And if you search the Swinging Six on YouTube, you can see some of their work. And they wrote... Um, um, you know, they came out, they would sing these songs to advertise, which had like, you know, really charming lyrics. Like here's an example. Well, hello, my friend, how do you do? We hope you have a moment or two to listen to what we have to say to each and every one of you. It concerns our postal system. So <laughs> it was put in a much more charming and catchy way. Uh, so I'm going to highly encourage everyone to, uh, to go to YouTube to, to hear the Swinging Six do their thing. Oh, that's amazing. It kind of reminds me of Schoolhouse Rock, but for zip codes. Yes, exactly. And it was hugely successful. I mean, they were adopted fairly quickly and, and they really have made, um, you know, sorting mail and, you know, incredibly easy and they, and they have other uses as well. That's great. So from your, um, but from your book, I learned that zip codes aren't the only thing that's newer than I had imagined. So yes. addresses in general are kind of new. These things you just completely take for granted. And there are some people around the world, but also even in the United States who have a home, but don't have an address still, right? Yeah, absolutely. And this is sort of how I got into this project was that I discovered this weird fact that most people in the world, it's billions of people in the in the world don't have addresses or at least not any kind of reliable address that you that you could uh, that you could use. 
And it was this kind of weird, quirky fact at first. But then when you actually think about it, it's hugely important because without a street address, you can't bank, you can't get credit. In some places, I mean, everywhere you'll find it difficult to vote. Um, you know, you, there's no privacy if you get a letter. Um, you know, it's just huge, these huge problems. Um, it's also a problem for the government because they can't tax people. And obviously taxes are a huge way of getting revenue for any kind of city. Um, and so when I found this out, I was like, this is very interesting. I'm American. This doesn't happen. And I found this article that at the time, West Virginia didn't really have street addresses. There were a lot of, um, not the whole state, but often the very rural parts of the state didn't have um, street names. And so there's this huge push um, in the 2000s to give street names. And, you know, this has, it's just a huge problem for people to operate and live without being able to have a targeted place where you can send mail and, and find them. Right, but then some people are suspicious of that they don't want a, an address or a zip code, right? Yeah, and that makes a lot of sense. At first, you know, I saw this when I traveled to West Virginia and in the stories in my book. Um, you'd hear about people, you know, literally in, in rural West Virginia, you know, meeting. Um, there was one story of meeting an addressing coordinator with a machete sticking out of his pocket. I mean, it's kind of a flamboyant story, but there were a lot of people who didn't want the street names. And some of it was, you know, the, you know, this, I like things the way they are, but actually it makes a lot of sense because the history of street names, I mean, we use addresses now, um, we think they help us and they do help us. You know, we get our mail, we're able to navigate, we're able to do all these useful things, get our, you know, you know, go to the bank. But actually they were designed in the 18th century really to find you. So it was really a matter of, um, you know, largely, in, at least in the European story, monarchs um, saying, look, I want to find you so I can do things to you, so that I can tax you, that I can draft you into my war, um, so that I can find criminals, so that I can find dissidents. There were all sorts of reasons that people wanted to give addresses that should make you suspicious. So yeah, it's a I good thing. A, I love this little anecdote from your book. It was yeah. so wonderful. So when the, um, I, I think it was in the 18th century when they painted the addresses on people's houses or doors, and then the people would cover them up or chill, even chisel them off. They would try to remove the exactly. address that the, the monarch had just put on their door. Exactly. It's like a subversive act. <laughs> exactly. It is subversive because, you know, we take it for granted, but there is something to being found. If you're used to being able to, to do what you want, and all of a sudden, you know, the government, the eye of this monarch, you, you know, especially back then, you know, not really elected, you know, they have these aims and they can suddenly see you, you know, you're unmasked, you know, you used to live in your house, you used to be private. And all of a sudden they can see you and often the number is we're also doing sort of a rough census at the time as well to figure out who was there. So it actually was, there was actually really good reason to rebel. So I always say that large, you know, people would say this was born out of ignorance that some people in rural areas didn't want street names um, and numbers, but actually, you know, it might've been also some insight in, as in what people actually want to do sometimes when they have an address, which is find you. And there are often good reasons for not wanting to be found. Yeah, yeah. I want to get my Amazon packages, but... <laughs> exactly, exactly. But then they can also slap taxes on you and um, yeah. Right. Well, you mentioned at the beginning that zip codes can be used for much more than and just mail delivery. Like how... Yeah, how, exactly. I mean, it's a weird thing um, that zip codes, you know, the post office very much holds to that they were used for mail and efficient sorting of mail. But we humans have found all of these other creative ways of using them for better, for worse. So for example, there was one commentator in the New York Times who said, nobody but nobody predicted 90210. You know, this idea... <laughs> This idea that zip codes have become demographic tools and ways of um, of sectioning out uh, large areas. So, you know, it's, it can be quite useful to have this, um, you know, in terms of describing different places and different regions in America. But they can also be sort of a, a tool for marketing and sometimes this turns to discrimination. So there's a company, for example, where you can type in your zip code 
and it'll tell you, you know, the percentage, different demographics within that zip code. So, you know, um, there's a, um, you know, for example, if you type in a certain zip code in Philadelphia, you know, a huge demographic is what they call modest income homes. And they will tell you what these people are like, which is consumers in this market consider traditional gender roles and religious faith very important. This market lives for today, choosing to save only for a specific purpose. You know, they favor TV as their media of choice and will purchase a product with a celebrity endorsement. You know, it's a bit wow. odd. Whereas if you type in 90210, this is, that was the example I give. They describe them as socially responsible consumers who aim for a balanced lifestyle. They are goal-oriented and hardworking, but make time for their kids and grandkids and maintain a close-knit group of friends. You know, it goes on. You know, they take an interest in the fine arts. They regularly cook their meals at home, attentive to good nutrition. And it just seems, it seems a bit bizarre. But, you know, there are lots of success stories of marketers using these as a way um, to target their services. And sometimes this can exacerbate existing problems in a neighborhood. If it's a neighborhood that's known to be large consumers of fast food, then a fast food company might say, great, this is a great place to put a fast food company here when the last thing that neighborhood needs is another fast food company. What they really need is a really great grocery store that would offer you know, fresh fruits and vegetables. But the demographics don't really quite um, indicate that from these descriptions. Wow, that's fascinating. Yeah. So they, they have to gather that information. That's more than just census data. It's more than just census data. Yeah, I'm not exactly sure how to do it. It'd be interesting to see, but a lot of it's on... Um, but yeah, but, you know, I encourage everybody to take a look and to see what they think. Um, yeah. So where is that? Do, do marketers so this is, have yeah, to pay so this for is that through Esri. It's online? It's just online. So it's this, you know, you can get um, Esri.com, you know, it's a, and then the, the system's called Tapestry. So, um, you know, you can also look to see if your 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 neighborhood has a large demographic of soccer moms or heartland communities. I mean, there are, I think, I believe dozens of them. Um, so, you know, it is interesting. How do you spell that? That's fascinating. Tapestry um, uh, is, is the name, but it's it's from the company Esri, E-S-R-I. Okay. Which I believe, I don't want to get this wrong, which I believe is... Yeah, if you Google Esri Tapestry, then you'll um, then you'll see, and you can type up, and you can learn more about how they do this, and get in the way they describe it is get more insights into America's changing population. Wow. Um, so yeah, so it's I mean it's an interesting uh, you know, and also they're also quite useful now for describing different places. So um, you know, there was a great piece in the New York Times this weekend that was about um, how much schools differ by zip codes, and there's a lot of uh, really interesting statistics about life expectancy and zip codes. So you can have um, different cities where just blocks over the life expectancy difference is 25 years. In Chicago, life expectancy varied by up to 30 years in one study, um, just through different zip codes or different neighborhoods. So it's also a way of showing um, disparities in places that are actually quite close together. Yeah. Oh, and one thing at the beginning of your book, it wasn't about zip codes in particular, but about addresses is, you know, they were important for epidemiological research, which, you know, tracking um, cholera, which, you know, just felt so relevant today when we're trying to track the coronavirus and yeah. the spread. Um, the addresses and probably zip codes are really important for epidemiology too. Yeah. And it goes back to our earlier point about street addresses and how they're useful to us or how they can be damaging to us in the sense that, um, as you said, in, in Victorian London, I'm actually in London right now, in Victorian London, you have um, Jon Snow, who's tracking cholera. It's a very different kind of disease than coronavirus. It's bacterial. It's spread in different ways. But it's also like a lot of disease, you know, location is important. So um, Jon Snow was able to use death certificates and addresses and interviewing people in different places um, to find out that cholera was coming from a very specific pump 
um, in Soho, which at the time was a slum in London. And I was really interested in this only to find out that, you know, in the, in Haiti, after the 2010 earthquake, when they had their own cholera outbreak, you would think we would have gotten so good at this, but they didn't even have the tool that Jon Snow had to track people, which was addresses. Hmm. So I spoke to the chief logistician for Haiti at the time, who would tell me that, you know, people would say, my addresses turn left at the mango tree. Well, when you're trying to track disease and locate sources of water and locate outbreaks, this is incredibly difficult to map. And so the tools that we had and in, in that, that London had, you know, in, in Victorian London weren't even applicable in the, you know, in 2010 in a lot of places. And a huge percentage of the world I can't give any numbers, but a lot of players, part of the world is um, are unmapped, not just unaddressed, but there aren't even maps. And so um, there's this great organization I encourage everybody, especially people with spare time, to go to, which is called Missing Maps, where from home you can do real life, um, really important uh, work, which is you download the satellite uh, information for a place in the world that's unmapped. And it's actually quite therapeutic. You trace the street, you know, you trace the roads and you can actually map using satellite data. And then somebody on the, on the ground later will actually look and give names as to what people in the neighborhood call names so that in advance of an epidemic, you aren't just sending, as I heard people do just motorcycles into nothing with no maps and no description of what's going on. So if people are looking for a lockdown activity, I highly recommend trying to do some work with missing maps um, and you can find them online. That's amazing. That sounds like a really good use of people's time. And yes, right. absolutely. It, like it also may be kind of, I can imagine how it would be therapeutic. Or- yes, it really is. It really is. And, and you get a sense for what these places, you know, um, you know, the, the damage that it could cause, you know, different places, not having maps and not having these fine grained statistics. I mean, think about, you know, you don't, you take for granted that an ambulance can just turn up at your door or that you might be able to get fine grained statistics or where coronavirus is in your town or even in your neighborhood, because we have these like really easy ways of pinpointing where people are now. Um, and that's just hugely difficult in huge parts of the world and puts them at a severe disadvantage. Yeah. Well, that, that's what struck me most about your book is just how much we take for granted that is underlying all the things that society does and the government does that, that we just assume have always been there, but they haven't. And the stories about how they came to be are really fascinating. So um, the book, again, is called The Address Book, What Street Addresses Reveal About Identity, Race, Wealth, and Power. And um, the author is with me today. She's Deirdre Mask. And thank you so much, Deirdre. Thank you so much, Mignon. I really appreciate you having me on. You bet. No, it's fascinating. I have about halfway through the book. I can't wait to finish it. So everyone else should read it too. It's called The Address Book. (laughs) Thank you so much. You're welcome. Have a great day. Thanks. You too. Okay. Thank you so much for listening today. I'm Mignon Fogarty, better known as Grammar Girl. You can find all the Grammar Girl articles at the home of my network, quickanddirtytips.com. And you can find me on Twitter and Facebook as Grammar Girl and on Instagram as The Grammar Girl. Thanks to my producer, Nathan Sams, and that's all. Thanks for listening. It's one thing falling in love with a house, picturing yourself moving in and calling it home, and quite another navigating the world of price negotiating, mortgage lenders, and finding the budget that works best for you. An agent who's a realtor can make understanding that world easier. Realtors have the expertise, access to proprietary data, and tools to help you get from imagining living somewhere to actually doing it. That's the kind of help we can provide. Because that's who we are. Realtors are members of the National Association of Realtors.
Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. With Capella University's game-changing FlexPath learning format, you gain relevant skills you can apply to your career right away. Earn your degree from an accredited university and be confident in the quality of your education. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Capella University is accredited by the Higher Learning Commission. Learn more at capella.edu slash accreditation.